This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I love every time in my personal devotions that I come to John chapter 9. It's loaded with humorous situations and memorable lines. Uh, For example, in verse 8, it says, The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? We continue in verse 9. Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So everyone's like, no, no, it's not him. He's like, it is. It really is me. No, 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 it can't be him. Then in verse 18 and following, we read, The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. And then the kicker. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. So if I was blind sitting by the side of the road and then Jesus comes along and heals me, I say, they got to phone my parents to find out whether I truly was blind or not. And then in verses 26 and 27, perhaps the best one of all, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? (laughs) And as you can see, they become so offended, (laughs) so incensed, that they put him out of the synagogue. I can almost see the Pharisees, and we know what kind of guys they are. They're so, in their own eyes, so dignified and so worthy of respect. And here's this very simple man <laughs> just chiding them for their, what is frankly their, their um, pre-commitment to unbelief, isn't it? I told you before and you would not listen. Isn't that exactly what's going on? So he exposes them and they, they're incensed and they put him out of the synagogue. And then finally, as far as humor goes, there is the interchange between Jesus. I see that we are now getting more back to normal with our usual weekly interruption by the ice cream truck. Finally, as far as humor goes, there is the interchange between Jesus and the formerly blind man in verses 35 and 36, in which Jesus asks, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the formerly blind man answers, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? It's somewhat of a humorous answer. It's so simple. The man, this man is very simple, and he is very childlike. Nothing really that he says in this passage is very profound. Even when they ask him, What do you say about this man since he opened your eyes? He, it sounds as if almost like he's trying to be profound, but he doesn't really know what to say. He says, he is a prophet. (laughs) It's something of a, you know, he's speaking of Jesus in venerable terms, but it's like he doesn't really know what to say. He doesn't have clear, well-formed thoughts yet. He just knows this guy's from God. And so he says, (laughs) but he, he, he does seem to be 
somewhat of a simple guy. He repeatedly says how, how he did this. I, I don't know. Where is he? I don't know. Who is he? I don't really know. Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he that I may believe in him? This man seems to have a childlike faith. It's heartwarming. And somewhat, as I say at the end there, somewhat humorous. And who is he that I may believe in him? There are also memorable lines in this chapter which are not humorous at all, but are just full of beauty and wonder. Jesus repeats his own memorable line from the previous chapter. He says again in chapter 9, as he has already said in chapter 8, I am the light of the world. And that's worthy of just pausing on and meditating on whenever you come across it in the scripture. And then the man who has come to see the light, quite literally, says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And following the childlike question, who is the Son of Man, sir, that I may believe in him? The man's confession is a beautiful and wondrous response to Christ. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. As I said, I love this story. Just a cursory read. Makes me chuckle and also fills me with joy. Every time I come to John chapter 9. But let's take a closer look at it beyond merely just this cursory review of the highlights. The first thing that we should note is that not all argumentation in this passage is sound. Much of what is said in this passage is descriptive rather than prescriptive. In other words, John is merely relaying or describing to us what people actually said, rather than telling us or prescribing what we ought to believe. The first example of this is clear because Jesus explicitly refutes it. Look in the beginning of this passage in verse 2 where Jesus' own disciples ask, Who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Their reasoning is as follows. If someone is born blind, it must be a result of sin. So this is their reasoning. And as I said, not all reasoning or not all argumentation in this passage is sound. John is simply telling us what the disciples said. He's not saying that their reasoning was correct. And that happens a few times in this chapter, which we'll we'll walk through. The first time is this, and this is an easy one because Jesus clears it up for us. In verse 3, Jesus says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So what Jesus is teaching us is that our suffering is not always a direct result of our sin. If that was true then our prosperity would always be a direct result of our righteousness. And you would expect that the more obedient you are, and the more full of faith you are, the easier your life will be. And the harder your life is, the more you must have messed up, or the more you're lacking in faith. Isn't it all connected? Which is why we see um, towards 
the end of the chapter in verse 31, the man saying, if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. It's actually the same logic as the disciples at the beginning. Sinners get uh, punished by blindness or whatever. But if you do the will of God, God listens to your prayers and answers them with a yes. This is kind of the logic that the man is bringing in verse 31. Now, we should, we should just stop and note, there is some truth to the sense that God is more favorable to our prayers when we walk in obedience to Him. God uh, says, for example, that husbands should treat their wives well for the sake of your prayers. That's later on in uh, Peter. And um, we see a few times where God says that He's going to turn a deaf ear to the prayers of His people because they're neglecting His law and, and not obeying Him. So there is some sense in which we inhibit, we can't act as if we don't care about God uh, in every facet of our lives and just live lawlessly, live sinfully, but then ask certain things and just expect that God's not going to care that we've been defying Him and will just probably still bless us, right? Uh, treating God like a some kind of a cosmic vending machine, right? That doesn't work. So there is some sense in which um, God listens more to the obedient, in a sense. Uh, we have to caveat that carefully, though, because I think in this context, the man uh, is not implying merely that. I think the man is implying that if someone's obedient, he can ask God, and God will just basically give him whatever he wants, which is kind of like the opposite side of the coin of what the disciples are saying earlier in the passage. So we want to we deal with that logic. That's not how life works. That's not how the new covenant works. That's, that's not how faith works. That's not how prayer works. You're not just on a system of rewards and punishments in terms of the circumstances of your life in relation to your faith and obedience. So Jesus deals with that in verse 3. Next, the Pharisees reason in verse 16 that Jesus broke the Sabbath and is therefore not from God. The problem here is that the conclusion is based on a faulty premise. Jesus did not break the Sabbath. So it is actually fair to say, if Jesus broke the Sabbath, truly broke the Sabbath, we could assume He is not from God. Could the Messiah be an adulterer? Could the Messiah be a murderer? Could the Messiah be an idolater or a thief? Neither could he be a Sabbath breaker. However, Jesus did not break the Sabbath. In Luke 14, verses 1 to 5, Jesus teaches about the relationship of Sabbath keeping to healing. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Jesus' reasoning is that mercy 
is lawful on the Sabbath. We ought to keep the Sabbath holy by prioritizing worship. We ought to be worshipful all day. Whether we're gathered in public worship, whether we're at home privately, we ought to not just... Sorry, I I, I even understated the case. We ought to not merely be worshipful. We ought to actually be worshiping all day, all Sunday. Except for when we're doing works of mercy, as Jesus taught us, or necessity. So eating, showering, no problem. You know, you see someone who got beat up on the side of the road while you're on your way to church. You don't cross the street and go to the other side. You help him and be a good Samaritan, right? This is what Jesus teaches us. The, the, the purpose of the day is worship, but works of mercy and necessity are okay. And so, um, even something like taking a rest, taking a nap in the afternoon so that you have energy to worship throughout the rest of the day is totally permissible. So Jesus did not, in fact, break the Sabbath. Next, some folks reason in verse 16, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? The um, sense of their question is, no, he didn't break the Sabbath, because if he did break the Sabbath, he wouldn't have been able to do these signs. Um, But what I want to get at here is this reasoning that sinners can't do signs. If we take this literally, of course it's absurd. Because everyone in the Bible but Jesus, who did a miracle anywhere in the Bible, was a sinner. Everyone except Jesus was a sinner, and yet miracles are done throughout the course of biblical revelation. So if we just take it very, very literally and precisely, it's absurd to say that sinners can't do any miracles. But if we take this as one who is a worshiper, um, or pardon me, the opposite of one who is a worshiper, which is the sense that the man himself uses the word sinner in verse 31. Let's just look there for a second. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God, right? So you see that those two things are held in opposition by this man. And so if we understand sinner then to be one who is not a worshiper, the sense of it would be unbeliever. And so the assumption that these people make then in verse 16 is that unbelievers can't do miracles. However, both the man in verse 31 and the folks in verse 16 reason erroneously that unbelievers cannot perform miracles. We remember Jesus' words. We looked at this actually very recently in our series in the book of Exodus. Uh, you'll remember that Jesus says in Mark 13, 22, that false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. And then the example of that, which we were studying, was Pharaoh's sorcerers in Egypt who were able to duplicate the turning of the staff into the snake as well as the first two plagues. So if you want a more in-depth treatment of that, go and listen to the sermon on uh, that section from Exodus where Aaron's staff turns into a snake. But we see that people who are sinners or unbelievers can actually sometimes do signs by demonic powers. So let me just, that was just 
making clear the point that not all of the reasoning in this passage that people make is well-founded. So obviously we take what Jesus says as being well-founded, and we take what comments John as the author gives us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as being sound and valid. But it's a good principle of biblical hermeneutics that you don't just take every quote from every person anywhere from Genesis to Revelation as being a good, sound statement. And we see some unsound statements even here in John chapter 9. So hopefully that clears up some potential for misunderstanding. The next thing we should notice is that surrounding, bookending the narrative is some actual teaching from Jesus. Very brief, a verse or two, but let's examine uh, the teaching that bookends this chapter. In John chapter 9 and verse 4, Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And most likely this refers to his death. You will read over in John uh, chapter 13 and verse 30, that after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was night. When he had gone out, etc., etc., and then we got, we come, we're moving very rapidly from that point forward toward the crucifixion. That's when Satan left, or pardon me, Judas left, possessed by Satan, to go and betray Jesus. And it was night, John tells us. So there seems to be this symbolism in John. It's a motif that that he develops. Now, the question then is. Does this period that Jesus is talking about, where it's going to be night when no one can work, does this then refer to the entire period from the crucifixion to the second coming? In other words, do something now because you won't be able to do anything later. We should heal this guy because soon the time is coming when nobody's going to be able to do any healing. Or is this period from the crucifixion to the ascension, right? Or possibly from the crucifixion to the resurrection, however you want to look at it. Well, if, if that's the case, then it would be a diff, different kind of urgency. It would be spend the time well whenever you're able. So if it's the first, it's like spend the time well because very, very soon it's over. You're not going to be able to do anything of the Father's work. Or it's going to be There are times when you can't do the Father's work. So whenever you can do the Father's work, do it. That's really what's in question here. And I think that our systematic theology favors the latter, which is that um, we should spend the time well whenever we're able. There are times when, when we're not able to do the Father's work, but when we are, we ought to. We read, for example, in the book of Acts, chapter 1, and verse 1. In the, book, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, what's the implication? In the second book, I am now going to deal with all that Jesus continues to do and teach. And what you see is that even after Judas goes out and it is night, you actually see later on, the apostles doing the works of him who sent the father, or pardon me, who sent the son, namely the father. And so 
we don't see Jesus stopping his work when he gets to the crucifixion, this work of healing. We don't see Jesus stopping this work of uh, casting out demons and raising uh, people from the dead and so on and so forth. We don't actually see that stop when Jesus goes to the cross. We see it at least in the book of Acts. And so I'm not going to draw out um, a lengthy argument about cessationism versus continuationism or anything like that this morning. But I would, I would simply say that if Jesus meant that nobody's going to be able to do any of those kinds of things after the, book, after the crucifixion, then you have to reckon with the book of Acts and explain at least how the book of Acts fits with that interpretation. So I think it's better then to take it the other way, to say, look, in a little while, guys, I'm going to be going to the cross, and we're going to be doing a whole bunch of other things, and that's not going to be the time to heal the blind man by the road. Our focus is going to have to be elsewhere. So, while we're here, while we have this opportunity, let's stop and let's heal this man. I think that that's the sense of what Jesus is saying in John chapter 9 and verse 4. So, in John chapter, that's the beginning. In John chapter 9 and verse 39 and 40 to 41, which is at the end, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. So this upending of expectations is a motif that probably all of us in this room are familiar with. Uh, for anyone who's not, or for anyone maybe who's watching online, this idea that Jesus didn't come for the rich, the well-established, the smart, the cream of the crop. Jesus came for the stragglers, the strugglers. Jesus came for the lost causes. Jesus came for the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, not many of you were wise, not many of you were of noble birth. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This idea here, look, you think you know something, you think that you're pretty smart, you think that you're enlightened, Jesus comes and you reject Him, and the people who realize that they're not all that and a bag of chips, those are the people who receive Jesus. And so it ends up being the blind who see. And it ends up being those who see that actually are the blind. And so everything is kind of turned upside down when Jesus comes. It's not Caesar, but the slaves who benefit most from the coming of Jesus Christ. That, that's the idea that Jesus says, that for judgment I came into this world, that those who, may, who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now the Pharisees say, and are we also blind? As if, like, it's absurd to think that we are blind. Can we get Jesus to state outright the absurd notion that we, the religious teachers who see everything so clearly, let's see if we can trap Jesus into saying that even we are blind. Jesus responds to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. This does not mean that they wouldn't have any guilt. 
but that they wouldn't have the guilt of being blind guides, that they wouldn't have the extra guilt associated with their pride and their arrogance concerning seeing themselves, thinking of themselves as seers. They wouldn't be guilty of seeing themselves, thinking of themselves more highly than they ought. It is their claim to see which creates new guilt on top of whatever guilt they already have from Adam as well as whatever personal sins they've committed. Jesus is not saying that if anyone just throws up their hands and says, I don't know anything, they're not guilty of anything. Jesus is just simply making their po- the point that their claim to see actually compounds their guilt. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't have had that extra guilt if they didn't claim to actually be those who are able to see. So that's what's going on at the beginning and at the end. So we've cleared up some potential for misunderstanding, seeing that not all the reasoning in this passage is sound. We've come to understand adequately what Jesus is saying at the beginning and the end of the chapter. None of this is actually the main idea of the text. What we need to see, pardon me, what we need to um, understand in this passage is that the sign is basically an illustration or a parable of spiritual truth. The the theme continues here from chapter 8, that Jesus is the light of the world. Remember at the beginning of John chapter 8, Jesus teaches, I am the light of the world, and then a conversation ensues. Jesus repeats then at the beginning of chapter 9, again, I am the light of the world, and then this whole series of events follows. This is really part of then the larger section of the larger... um, Uh, motif of Jesus, the light of the world that John is developing. The healing is a demonstration in visible, observable terms what Christ does to the soul in conversion or what happens to the soul in conversion. Jesus gives light where once there was darkness. I once was lost in darkest night but thought I knew the way. The sin that promised has led me to the grave. It is this bringing of the soul from darkness to light, which is why even we, who have never been without physical eyesight, may sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind. But now, I see. Which is basically, and very obviously, derived actually from this guy's words. In John chapter 9. One thing I know. I was blind. But now I see. So, so Newton picks up on that. And what's happening in this chapter. And crafts that profound hymn. It's not only this man that was blind. But it was I that was blind. And it was not only this man that Christ gave sight, but it was also to me that Christ gave sight. What's happening here physically, temporally, is what's happening to the eternal soul. Is what's happening inwardly in conversion. For this reason, I like Calvin's explanation of the mode of Christ's healing in this particular case. You remember Jesus heals in all kinds of different ways throughout the Gospels. But in this particular case, 
he spits on the ground and makes mud with the saliva, as verse 6 tells us. And Calvin says it was to double the blindness. When the man's eyes were covered with saliva-infused mud, how utterly blind he was. He was blind with dirt in his eyes. Right? This is the state of our souls without Christ. We are blind with dirt in our eyes. Yet Christ bids us to trust Him. To make use of the cleansing that He provides. And He assures us that we will see. Go now and wash. And you will receive your sight. The faith of the blind man is called forth by Christ Jesus. Jesus is soliciting faith from him. What response is required from this man to what Jesus says? Go wash in the pool of Siloam. It's trust and obedience. It's faith and repentance. It's taking Jesus at his word. Doing what he says. The faith of the blind man is called forth by Jesus here. Will he believe Jesus and do what he says? We see here, yes he will. He doesn't even know who this man is yet. He's very, very simple. He's like a child. We teach our children, we try to train our children up in the way that they should go. As parents, we all ought to do the same. And our kids don't understand everything. They ask us and they, they, they often take what we say as gospel truth. I was actually speaking to my one of my unbelieving friends um, about a week ago, a week and a half ago. And I forget why it came up, but we started talking about what we teach our kids about Santa. And... Uh, he, he said that when his parents informed him about the truth about Santa, his very next, his very next question was, is God real? Because in his little mind, his parents had told him this thing, and it was all false. And so he just started to think then about, well, what else is false? Our children don't necessarily rationalize everything else. Is, is there truly a man in the North Pole who has a whole bunch of elves that work for him? And they work year-round. And on December 24th, he fits enough toys for all the children in the world, all the boys and girls in his little sled. And then he calls his magical reindeer, which can fly. And he loads all the things, all the toys in. And he begins traveling very quickly around the world from one place to the next, going into the home of every boy and girl and bringing a toy to them. You can see, if you think about that rationally, you can see where it leads. And yet our children don't question us. You tell them that's what's up and they believe it. Right? It's the same way with spiritual things, which is why we have such a weighty responsibility with our children. 
Because we can mislead them not only about Santa, but about the Lord. And we can tell them things which are not true. And they, in childlike trust, will simply believe. This man doesn't have this whole situation reasoned out. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. Remember, after this happens, they say, who is he? And he says, he is a prophet. Right? They ask him, they say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he says, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. This man knows basically nothing about Jesus at this point. But here he is in front of Jesus. And Jesus says to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And so this man is face to face with Jesus and he has a decision to make. Will I trust Jesus and do what Jesus says? It's just as simple as that. And for whatever reason, this man makes the decision to trust Jesus and to do what Jesus says. Very, very childlike. We remember at the end, he asks, And who is the Son of Man, sir, that I may believe in him? This gives us an indication of this man's temperament. This is not the skeptic. This is not the cautious intellectual. This is not the analytical uh, scientific methods evaluator of truth claims. This man is childlike. Very, very simple. He just trusts this guy in front of him like a child trusts his parents. He is ready and eager to trust as opposed to being hesitant and predisposed not to trust. Is this how you relate to Jesus? Will you begin, if you haven't yet, to relate to Jesus in this way? This is what is called forth from us by Christ. Jesus, the light of the world in this chapter, gives light to a man who had been in darkness. And He will do the same for you if you will but come into the light. We see in this passage, however, two types of unbelief in contrast to this man who believes and believes in a childlike way. Though all ought to respond to Jesus like the blind man did, not all do so. There are the Pharisees, of course, who harden themselves against Christ. They won't even entertain the idea that they are blind. They ask mockingly, or, or almost as if they are scandalized by the very thought in verse 40. Are we also blind? As we saw in chapter 8, they are in fact blind. They are in utter darkness. But they won't admit it. They won't listen to Jesus. And they won't listen to those who have listened to Jesus. Remember this man comes and says to them, I told you already, but you will not listen. This is the, the position of the Pharisees. They don't care about the evidence. They don't want to think it through. They, they are ready and eager to disbelieve. 
in contrast to the man who was ready and eager to believe. These guys are on the opposite side of the spectrum. They are antagonistic to Jesus. So much so that in verse 22 we read, The Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Basically excommunicated from their church, so to speak. And that is what they do, in fact, to this man who was formerly blind in verse 44. They excommunicate this simple man who knows only that he was blind, but now he sees. Some today are like the Pharisees. They're very, very antagonistic, very, very opposed to Christ. They do not want to know the truth. They are not willing to have a reasonable conversation You might think of, as examples, certainly not an exhaustive list, but you might think of the new atheism, as it's called. The old atheism, I guess, which is what it is by implication, was more ambivalent to Christian claims. We simply don't believe that. Whatever you want to believe, we don't care. But we do not want to believe. New atheism evangelizes, if I may put it that way. New atheism not only wants to not believe... But they want everyone else to not believe. And so you have rallies and events and groups and media produced and so on and so forth to get other people to not believe. These are like the Pharisees. They're antagonistic. They are ready and eager to disbelieve. You tell them the truth, but they will not listen like the Pharisees in this passage. Or, if I may put it this way, the intolerant of intolerance crowd. Uh, I was listening, it must have been a few years ago because he referenced President Obama, but um, Rowan Atkinson, which is, my wife said, who is that? I said, Mr. Bean. She said, oh, okay. Rowan Atkinson was giving a speech um, at an event about a bill that was being passed in the UK, um, which had something to do with criminalizing the use of words, the use of speech. And he was making a speech uh, arguing for the maintenance and the preservation of free speech, even if it's offensive to some. And he gives, actually, it's a pretty good talk. He gives good reasons. What's at me? And I'll be happy to send it along if you'd like to hear it. It's about 10 minutes long. But he made the point that um, D.A. Carson has made before, that many others have also noted, that so many of the people who are advocating for tolerance are actually incredibly intolerant. So they're advocating for tolerance, but if they heard me preach, they wouldn't tolerate it. So how tolerant really are they? You understand that there are people who are opposed to Christ. They are ready and eager to disbelieve. They will not listen. Their mind is closed. It's made up. No matter what you say, They will not believe. They don't want you to believe either. Some today are like the Pharisees. I hope that none of you are in that place. I hope no one watching us online is in that place. But some are that way. There are also those, in fact many, many more, who are like in this passage the man's parents. Or the indecisive crowds who simply do not commit to Jesus. They may not be as antagonistic 
as others are to Jesus. But still, for whatever ostensible reason, they do not believe. Look in this passage here. The crowds. Some said, it is he. Others, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. And they said to him, then how were your eyes open? And they said, where is he? He said, I do not know. They're, they supposedly have questions. And they're willing to talk about it. They're willing to discuss it. But still, they do not believe. Whatever, for whatever reason, at the end of the day, they still do not believe. And then there are the man's parents. So, they admit, we know that this man is our son. And we know that he was born blind. That's verse 20. But, look at verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And so their fear of being put out of the synagogue keeps them from confessing Jesus to be the Christ. Even though they know full well that Jesus has made their blind son see. They're not as antagonistic, at least not outwardly, as the Pharisees. We know that the unregenerate heart, all hearts in their natural state are inclined away from God. We understand that. I get that. I'm not contradicting what I've previously said here, but we can simply recognize that some people are more antagonistic than others. And what I want to bring across to you today is that it doesn't matter how antagonistic you are or are not to Jesus. It's all unbelief. If you don't come to Jesus, you are an unbeliever. When Jesus, when you are confronted with this opportunity to believe Jesus and to act on what you have heard about Jesus or from Jesus through the apostles and prophets in the scripture, you have a choice before you as this man did to disbelieve or to believe. As this man's parents had before them, to disbelieve or to believe. As the crowds had before them, to disbelieve or to believe. And as the Pharisees had before them, to disbelieve or to believe. There are good, sound, intellectual reasons to be a Christian. In fact, it is intellectually unsound not to be a Christian. However, you do not have to answer every possible question and objection that you have before you come to faith in Jesus. In fact, you're going to find that that is a bottomless pit that will damn you. Because you are basically requiring to obtain infinite knowledge before you come to faith in Christ. I must know everything about God. I must know everything about God's Word. I must know more about theology and more about 
science and more about theology proper. I must know more about Greek and Hebrew. I must know more about archaeology than archaeologists, than linguistic experts, than pastors, than PhDs in physics and biology and chemistry or whatever who are all believers. You're saying I need to be an expert in every discipline before I will come to Christ. That may not be the Pharisee approach, but listen, it's still an unbelieving approach and it's going to leave you stuck in unbelief. At some point, you have to be like the neighbors and those who had seen persons before as beggars. Christians who once were blind but now they see. And look and and think about that. And see how God has changed many a man. There may be a few pressing questions that keep you from belief. You may have misconceptions about the nature of Christianity or the nature of the Bible or so on and so forth that you need to work through before you come to Christ. Saying you, you can't resolve all questions is not saying you can't ask any or you've got to stop thinking. But just be careful that you're not stuck in perpetual unbelief as those who are described later by the Apostle as always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Professional career skeptics who have questions in their first year of university and then questions in their second year and their third year and their fourth year and then questions that linger during their postgraduate degree and then questions and questions and questions and here are these 85-year-old men dying on their beds never having come in childlike faith and trust to Christ Jesus though they've thought long and hard about these things and though there's plenty of evidence out there they will not listen. Wherever you are on the spectrum, whether you hate Jesus and hate His gospel, whether you want not only yourself not to believe, but you don't want anyone else to believe, or whether you simply fancy yourself an intellectual person, an enlightened person, whether you think that you see and don't need, therefore, the light of the world, whether you're afraid of the relational fallout as this this man's parents were afraid of the relational fallout if they confessed Jesus to be the Christ. Wherever you are on that unbelieving spectrum, it's still the unbelieving spectrum. Far better to be like this man and just find out enough, enough about him to believe in him. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? You're telling me about Jesus? Tell me enough that I may believe in him. Jesus was a man who lived and died and rose roughly 2,000 years ago. But he was not a mere man. The scripture testifies that he was God's son. That the word who is in the beginning with God and was God became flesh and dwelt among us. That He is the prophesied 
Son of Man, prophesied centuries earlier, who would approach the Ancient of Days and who would be given an everlasting kingdom. And Jesus lived roughly 30 years, 33 years in this world, doing the Father's will. To him, he said it was like food to him to do the Father's will. He worked the works of him who sent him while it was day, while he was here among us. He lived righteously, obeying the law on our behalf. Galatians tells us that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And all of this was to redeem those who were under the law. Because the law expects from you and me perfect obedience, which we don't have. And so Jesus acted as a representative for all who would trust in him, living perfectly, obeying perfectly on their behalf. And then Jesus satisfied the demand that the law makes upon lawbreakers, that we be punished for our sin, that God's wrath be poured out upon us. That's what Jesus did at the cross. And Jesus did not stay dead, otherwise we'd be worshipping a dead God, which would really be no God at all. Jesus rose from the dead, and He ascended to the right hand of the Father, where He ever lives to make intercession for us, and therefore may save us to the uttermost. And Jesus will return to judge in righteousness, and He will separate the sheep from the goats, and He will bring those who have trusted in Him to live with Him forever in a new city where He Himself is the light. So there's no need of lamps to live in this new everlasting kingdom which was given him by the Ancient of Days in the prophecy in the book of Daniel centuries before the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. That's who Jesus is. That's who the Son of Man is that you may believe in him. There are, as I said, PhDs who have believed in this Jesus. There are archaeologists who have believed in this Jesus, historians who have believed in this Jesus, physicists, chemists, biologists who have believed in this Jesus. Oh, but I'm a philosopher, you say. Well, there are philosophers too who have believed in this Jesus. There are people smarter than you who have believed in this Jesus. There are people more educated than you who have believed in this Jesus. There really are no intellectual reasons not to believe in this Jesus. You can start digging around, start asking the questions that you have. Truth is not afraid of examination. I'm not telling you to shut off your brain, don't ask questions, just listen and believe. I am telling you though that if you shut off your brain, and ask no questions and just listen and believe. That's a good choice. A better choice than the unbelief of the Pharisees. A safe choice. It's a choice better than the intellectuals who debated back and forth about the identity of this man and whether he really was the blind man who sat there or not. It's a better choice than this man's parents who weighed everything up and thought about the relational fallout that might occur if they believed. I'm not telling you to shut off your brain and stop thinking that's what cult leaders do and I'm not one and Christianity is not a cult. Look at the Bible. Read it. 
Think about it. You want to be truly rational? Then consider the data. Have you ever read through the whole Bible? Well, perhaps start there. And give it some serious thought as you go. And ask the questions. For those watching online, if you're not part of a Bible-believing church, if you don't attend a Bible-believing church regularly, get in with a crowd like that and start asking your questions. There are satisfying intellectual answers to our questions about Christianity, about the Bible, about God. All I'm saying to you is if you're a simple person and you can just take Jesus at His word and go and wash, you're going to come back seeing. And you're going to find that you might not have all the answers, but you can say one thing I know. I was blind, but now I see. Which is why we can preach the gospel to our little children. And we can just tell them the very simple basics. They don't reason it all out. But we can just explain to them that they're sinners. And that they need to ask God for forgiveness. And that God will forgive them. Because Jesus lived a perfect life. He was not a sinner. And so His righteousness will be like a coat or a shirt that they could put on. And that Jesus died in their place. Just like if one kid was supposed to go to time out and another kid volunteered to go instead. Jesus went like a substitute. We can just explain in very simple terms. We can tell them, this is, the son, this is who the Son of Man is that you might believe in Him. You can just get whatever picture you can get of Jesus. Make sure it's biblical and right, but I mean, if it's 1080... HD, great. You can get that. But if it's, if it's also like 480, that's okay too. No problem. If it's like an old black and white TV and you've got rabbit ears extending from the top and you're getting a signal that's not coming in too good, it's a little fuzzy. You can't see Jesus too good and you don't understand everything. In fact, you don't understand very much. That's okay too. Go and watch. You're going to come back soon. Those who claim to see, who claim to be too enlightened to believe in Jesus, to need the light of the world, those are the ones that are actually blind. But it's the people who are actually in darkness and actually see in Jesus some light. Imagine if you were lost in a cave and somehow you took a wrong turn, you got separated from your group, whatever. And so before long, you're just in utter darkness. And you're wandering around and you're stressed. And I've heard there's caves in this island where when the tide comes in, <clears throat> certain parts of it are entirely submerged. So you're freaking out. Look, if you see a little bit of light, you're going to go to it. Right? You're not going to be like, ah, it's probably not big enough. Let me go the other way. When you are in darkness, you appreciate the light. You see the light. And you go to however much light you can get. It's better to be a simple person who doesn't understand everything, but knows enough about the Son of Man that like this simple man, you just go to Him and believe. It's much better to be in that position than to be in 
the academy up in your ivory tower debating about this and that but still not coming to be the president of the New Atheist Association and not come to be among the intolerant of intolerance crowd and hate Jesus and not come because Jesus is a bigot it's better to just be a simple guy that just says look I don't know everything one thing I do know I was blind but now I see let's be those kind of childlike Christians use whatever intellectual capacity you have to get to know him more and to make that picture clearer to move from a black and white airborne signal to a 1080 HD picture but whatever intellectual gifts we have or don't have let's just take hold of whatever we can about the Son of Man and have this childlike faith. Tell me, tell me more about Jesus in order that I might believe it.